Welcome to the Sober Podcast, brought to you by the Sober Network. The Sober Network is actively engaged in revolutionizing the recovery community. We offer fresh ideas, voices, and incentives to impact massive social change. Our technology expertise is best seen in our multiple brands. They demonstrate a thorough understanding of how we get things done. Take us along on your journey and we will help build the recovery capital needed to sustain life on life's terms. Visit us at SoberNetwork.com. Welcome to the Sober Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Brickhouse. And before we get started, I'd like to take a minute to get the word out about one of our latest product lines brought to you by Soberverse, Sober Life Apparel, where positivity and pride pave the way to a brighter, healthier future. Please visit our new website, Sober Life, that's S-O-B-R-L-I-F-E.com and check out the new merchandise. Our sober celebrity guest today is Jessica Leahy. Jess is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed, and The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Jess was awarded the Research Society on Alcohol's Media Award for Outstanding Journalistic Efforts of Writers Who Cover Empirical research on alcohol for her book, The Addiction Inoculation, and advocacy for the recovery community. Jess, thank you for joining us. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. Ah, Glad that you're here and wanted to talk today with you um, about substance use prevention and and talking to the kids about Mm -hmm. resisting uh, substance use. And Wanted to know um, or start off with what in your own youth led to the focus uh, on protecting children and adolescents from abusing substances? Yeah, no surprise there. I was raised by an alcoholic who and my I have a parent who was raised by an alcoholic and I have a grandparent, who, you know, and so Mm -hmm. on and so on and Mm -hmm. so on. And the one thing I knew when I was young is that I would never do that. Like I would never end up like, you know, using and being an alcoholic like my parent. And of course not. Um, oh, of course not. No, no, no. <laughs> and exactly. That's exactly where I landed. I was um, I got sober in, when I was uh, 43. So mm-hmm. it's been 10 years. Um, but I was in trouble for a while before that, for a yeah. long while before yeah. that. I, I knew I was in trouble. Um, and, you know, it was. Even have you would think you would think <laughs> that even having the experience of being raised by someone with substance use disorder, even having been a peer drug and alcohol counselor in college, like I had all the knowledge, I right. just couldn't, I couldn't square the two things. And um, all I knew was my kids were getting old enough that they were going to notice soon. And yeah. um, Luckily for me, uh, I, my dad was the person who came in and said, you know, you really need help. And I was at the right moment to be able to hear that. Yeah. What, um, so you are a parent and Mm -hmm. what do these conversations look like with your kids? Uh, so I got sober when my kids were 12 and like, uh, how old was it? Something like six and 12 or Mm -hmm. seven and 12. 
And, you know, it, we were right at the right place that they were old enough to be able to understand what it meant. And we'd had conversations before that, like they knew that one of their grandparents was an alcoholic and or is an alcoholic because it had blown up, you know, family vac- holidays and things like that. And yeah, we right. were we never. Yeah, that's where you can really see the alcoholism. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> and, you know, it blew up a Christmas one year due to a relapse. And I was mm-hmm. never willing to lie to them. Mm-hmm. And except about my own drinking, of course, that was the one thing I was willing to lie to anybody about, including myself. Right. But, you know, when when that Christmas blew up, my uh, my sister and I, before, you know, we were a unified front with our kids and we left and we canceled Christmas essentially in that form. And we talked to them about it. So, you know, and I also knew once I'd done the research for um, the addiction inoculation, what it meant to have a gene- genetic predisposition for substance use disorder. And I understood that I didn't have time to mess around and not talk about it. So we talk about it a lot and we talk about it just in, in the sense of, you know, not using and you're at the adolescent brain and why it's so much more damaging to the adolescent brain. But we also have conversations like, look, if you're using weed, um, what does it look like? Or if you're drinking, what does it look like, feel like when it moves from casual use to um, something a little more ominous? We have those conversations a lot because, you know, my kids are now almost 25 and almost 20. And so now our conversations have very much shifted toward um, here's the warning signs that you need to be on alert for um, if things start to get a little scary with you and your substance use. Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe that there is a genetic predisposition to uh, alcohol and substance abuse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it runs on my father's side of the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and, you know, no matter how much knowledge we have um, <laughs> growing up or, you know, yeah. and, and we see our, in our, our firsthand experience of, of, of the destructive effects of alcohol and substance abuse, but sometimes it can't stop us from. No, oh, no, no. Like, and that's in one your of the case, things- but, but what I do, what I, what I think is great about what's happening now um, in this, you know, in the last generation that, that mm-hmm. we're much more open about alcoholism and addiction and about treating it and about people in recovery. So that even if yeah. it's not going to stop you from becoming an alcohol or an addict, but you're, you're going to have some knowledge of what to do at, you know, we're at, a, you- we're at a really amazing time where not only can we look inside the human brain and see what's going on at various stages and ages in life, and we can see what's happening in the brains of kids who use, um, you know, for example, a kid who uses weed on a regular basis on um, more than twice a week has a smaller hippocampus than a kid who doesn't or has a smaller, you know, thinning of the frontal lobe, that kind of thing. But also we have a better idea of what the genetic picture looks like. We now mm-hmm. know that genetics is about 50 to 60 percent of the risk picture when it comes comes to developing substance use disorder later on in life. We know that the younger a kid is when they first try substances, the longer, the higher their lifelong risk of developing substance use disorder. And most importantly, we know looking at the adolescent brain that it is not done developing until the early to mid twenties and that it is at increased risk for damage due to substances um, during that time. Yeah. Um, You also, um, uh, teach child, uh, teach, uh, in Vermont, right. About, um, classes on, on, um, for adolescents on, uh, substance abuse. 
disorder? So actually what I've done, um, so I was a teacher in middle school and high school for a long time. I then taught in a, in a rehab for adolescents. So I was mm-hmm. teaching kids who were actually in rehab. And then um, for the past two years, um, I was working at Santa at Stowe, which is a medical detox and recovery, evidence-based, research-based detox and recovery. And I was, but for people 18 and up. So I was working with adults. And if they had kids, we would have a lot of conversations about like, here's ways to talk to your kids about this. Here are ways to understand your kid's risk and ways that you, the most evidence sort of most proven ways to talk to kids about substance use disorder that can actually decrease their risk of, of substance use disorder over their lifetime, as opposed to things like, you know, the early iterations of DARE that actually increased kids' risk of developing substance use disorder. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about uh, the stinky and dirty show. <laughs> I, so that, I, got, I believe it teaches kids uh, problem solving and was adapted yeah. from your curriculum, but... Uh, I love Stinky and Dirty. Actually, we had the book when my kids were little, we had the books that Stinky and Dirty, the Stinky and Dirty show were based on. We had a book called I Stink about a dump truck. And I got a call from someone who was working with Amazon saying, do you want to be a part of helping create the show? And I at first I said, no, I don't want to be a part of creating screen time, more screen time for kids. But then I realized the person who was asking me um, was the creator of Blue's Clues, and her name is Alice Wilder. And you do not say no to Alice Wilder. She's <laughs> she's amazing. And so I got to be a part of this incredible show that really is about um, helping kids become um, learn how to make mistakes and learn from their mistakes and be innovative and creative and resourceful. And I love the Stinky and Dirty show. I really uh. do. Well, you also hold the honor of having one of your articles adapted into an SAT prompt. Tell us what that was, how that it's, ended up. As a former teacher, I had <laughs> to issue this massive blanket. I'm so sorry, not only to my students, but to my own children. And actually, the reason I found out about it, I did not know it was going to be an SAT question. I found out about it because one of my friend's kids came home from taking the SAT and said, Jess is on the SAT. And then I started getting attacked on Twitter by high school students. And it's a thing. Apparently, I did not know this. My son told me it is a thing to make SAT memes or it used to be a thing on Twitter. And I became an SAT meme on Twitter and I saved all of them because they're very funny. But it was it was essentially people um, taking jabs at me, uh, high schoolers taking jabs at me on Twitter. And I loved it. I hope you end up as a Jeopardy question soon. Wouldn't that be amazing? That's really that's when you know you've hit the pinnacle right there as a New York Times crossword puzzle clue or as a Jeopardy clue. That's that's when you know you've really made it. Let's talk a little bit more about um, how you teach the um, the dangers of, of alcohol and and drugs when it's so ingrained in our culture in advertisements and uh, yeah, that's a great point. Um, essentially, and TV shows and yeah, accurate information really is the goal going all the way through, uh, and really great information not just about drugs and alcohol, but about how their brains work in terms of like learning. The more kid understands, the more a kid understands about how their brain works and why it's important to sort of keep their brain safe uh, during adolescence, um, the better they're able to sort of 
give a context. This isn't mm -hmm. just like, oh, don't drink because it's bad. The kids, adolescents in particular, not, and I'm not so great with the just do it because I said so kind of approach. Right. Uh, the just say no sort of approach doesn't work. Yeah, just work. say no didn't work. I don't believe. Right. <laughs> Giving them a lot of information about what the harm that is uh, does to their brain and then helping debunk some of these myths that you're talking about that, you know, everybody does it is not a valid argument because, for example, you know, we know, it, for example, in eighth grade, when if kids are going to be trying alcohol, it's, you know, usually somewhere during middle school is when it begins. Mm -hmm. The argument that everybody does it is not true. It turns out that only 24.7% of middle school students of eighth grade students are going to try alcohol by the end of eighth grade. So, you know, if they have that information, at least in their head, they can say, hold on. I know that's not true. It sort of empowers them, helps them right. feel like they have more self-efficacy. And then having refusal skills, which is one of the um, one of my favorite parts of the book uh, that isn't really, I can't take credit for. It was all adolescents who gave me their favorite excuses for why they're not going to drink or use drugs if they're out at a party and they want to save face. So it's like two and a half pages of the coolest excuses. And, you know, no is a complete sentence or no, thank you is a complete sentence, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. um, all kinds of great excuses. Like, you know, my, I have an early practice in the morning. I'm gluten intolerant. Can't have that beer. Um, I'm taking antibiotics. I have a sleep disorder. I get migraines. All of these um, excuses are absolutely fantastic. And if they want to throw us under the bus and say something like, oh, I can't, my mom drug tests, I'll, she'll know. And I'll be, you know, <laughs> yeah. grounded for the rest of my life. Even if that's not true, throw me under the bus. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, do you, in talking to your kids um, mm -hmm. about your um, history uh, mm -hmm. and, and alcoholism, uh, do you talk about your recovery and what that looks like and, and, uh, and how you got sober? Yeah, there it's been a part of their lives now for 10 years. Um, and actually when we were on vacation together when I celebrated my 10th anniversary, and mm -hmm. now that they're out there in the world and have met people, you know, have met people who had possibly an alcoholic as a parent or someone who has an active alcoholic alcoholic as a parent, it was the first time I sort of got this sense from me that they were grateful that I made that decision to go and get help. Um, and I get, you know, also I have kids who like to mock me on a constant basis. And so, you know, there's the whole, like, you know, if my, if, I know if my daughter has, my daughter had a friend over, um, we tend to take in strays over the holidays. Like if people can't make it home from college mm -hmm. over the Thanksgiving or whatever, they come here. And, um, we had a, my daughter had a friend here who's from a country where the legal drinking age is 18. And so in their country, it would have been legal, but I explained that in our house, you know, if you're not of le legal drinking age, we, you don't drink alcohol. And my daughter made all kinds of jokes about it and stuff like that. But, you know, they're never, I'm never going to be cool to them. So I'm okay with the fact that, you know, I'm a fairly dorky parent and, and, you know, they, they've had to grow up with, you know, the gift of failure mom and, you know, the, the addiction inoculation mom. And so sort of, they know what they were, they knew what they were in for from the beginning. And I talked to them about my writing as I go along and both of my kids love to write. So yeah. having that have been part of this research and writing process, they know most of what I know. And so if I were to do anything other than sort of best practices for parents, they could call me on that too. And speaking of best practices for parents, what advice do you give to parents um, who want to highlight the dangers of addiction if they themselves are mm -hmm. drink? 
Yeah. So the one of the things I get to talk about in the book is that actually really good substance use prevention for kids starts literally in nursery school, preschool, kindergarten. And it's just talking to kids about, you know, what we put inside of our bodies and what stays outside of our bodies and how we speak up for ourselves. If something make us, makes us feel uncomfortable, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a bottle of pres- prescription medication on the counter and your kid is learning their letters saying things like, sweetie, can you find the letters of mommy's name in this, in, on this label? And then talking to them about why it's important to read the label and know whose name on it. Is it because you can't take something that's prescribed for someone else. And that, mm-hmm. you know, later on down the road becomes the entry point for a discussion about misusing, um, you know, pain medications, for example, that have been prescribed for someone else. Even if you have the same last name, you can't take the... (laughs) Sadly, no. Um, And so moving through those conversations all the way up and, you know, it's we've gotten to a place now actually where both of my children have lost acquaintances to... um, to overdose, Mm. to actually to poisoning Mm. because it was fentanyl. Um, One of Mm. my, my daughter lost a classmate to that classmate thought, you know, they were just buying a bar of Xanax and going to have a good time after graduation and was dead when their parent came to find them the next morning. And, you know, my, my niece has two friends that, um, that they were just going to have a good time and try some ecstasy. And both of them died, 18 year old girls. So, we now have these very real contexts, unfortunately, in which to put this stuff. And I'm really happy to say, actually, that um, my parent is in recovery now. I'm in recovery. Um, you know, my sister, I've become sort of the the aunt who talks to the nieces also about the substance use disorder stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just I lead with that. And, you know, I lead with the fact that I have a queer kid. I lead with the fact that I, you know, have substance use disorder. And that makes me someone safe for people with substance use disorder to talk to. Um, you know, all of these things, I think, are more important for us to talk about because that reduces shame and blame and guilt. And there's no room for that, whether you have a kid who's, you know, doesn't doesn't adhere to, for example, a gender norm or doesn't yeah. adhere to, you know, a mental health standard. I think it's really important that we talk about this stuff. Right. And speaking of how you, the, the language we use mm-hmm. um, and uh, what are your thoughts? And you were, you were uh, saying most often substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about that as opposed to alcoholism and, and or addiction? Well, the actually now what's really interesting is the the terminology has been changed in all the style guides. I'm a journalist. I was a journalist before, you know, yeah. I've, uh, before a lot of things. So in the AP style guide, for example, the all of that stuff has been changed from, you know, we don't use addict. We don't use alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I use alcoholic for myself because that's the word that I happen to identify with. I like me too. The bl- yeah. I like the bluntness of it. I like the in your face of it. Um, but I, but other people, if I was talking about you, I would be referring to you as a, as a person with substance use disorder. So we try to stick with the person first so that we don't, um, you know, heap shame on, you know, the fact that you are an addict or, you know, but as a, as a person in recovery, we all use very different terms for ourselves. An alcoholic is what I call myself. It, it reminds me that, I still am. And at any moment could be an active alcoholic um, all over again. And all of that could start again. So yeah, I, I knew, need that reminder. I knew a guy um, in, in recovery who w- w- would identify himself as an alcoholic and a filthy crack addict. Um, <laughs> and, the, 
and it was really for him, you know, to remind him that, you know, where, where that took him. Um, your column, the parent teacher conference ran for over three years in the New York times. And did you, uh, how much did you use it to bring up substance, uh, use disorder awareness? Only towards the very end, I was st- when I was writing that column, I was still really struggling. It wasn't until sort of I'd been in that column for a little while that I started to get some perspective. And I've never enjoyed reading um, books or articles by people who are using their journalism or their writing as their own therapy. So I, mm. for me, I... I did a lot of exploration in there. I, I did inter- interview the kids um, who, that I was teaching at the rehab for one article about um, sort of what in your most open moments could an adult have said to you that would have changed your thinking around um, using drugs and alcohol. That was a really fun article. Mostly I answered questions that people would send me that they were either that parents were afraid to ask teachers or that teachers were afraid to say to parents or that students wanted their teachers to know, or that students wanted their parents to know. So I was at that intersection of education and parenting. And I love that space. That's been the space that I've always worked within. Sounds like you're very successful in that space. And one last question that we ask all of our guests, which is what is the best lesson you have learned in sobriety in recovery? I have to be honest with myself, with Mm -hmm. my kids, with, um, you know, lying is the very thin end, lying lying and hiding things. I think I became so good at hiding what I was doing and that made it okay. If I looked okay to other people, then I was okay. And so I admit when I'm depressed, I admit when I need help. My husband is incredibly supportive of my getting and staying sober and is really grateful that I did. We would be divorced by now if that hadn't, (laughs) I'd probably be dead by now if that hadn't happened. So if I'm feeling, um, if, you know, if I'm feeling like I'm just not strong enough for us to have that dinner party where people are going to have wine at the dinner party, then we don't have wine at that dinner party. Or if I'm out somewhere with him, uh, we have sort of signal between us that it's time for us to go home, that I feel like I'm just not in a great place to be exposing myself to, mm-hmm. you know, drinking or whatever. Um, I have to be honest about that stuff or I'm sunk. Great lesson and great interview. Thank you, Jess. Thank you so much. I just have so much fun talking about this stuff. And everyone, um, I urge you to get uh, Jess's books, The Gift of Failure, How Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed, and The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. And to all of our listeners, thank you for your continued support. Visit us on SoberPodcast.com and all places where you find major podcasts. Sign up for our mailing list. Leave us a review. You will also find the contact information and ways to order uh, Jessica Leahy's books in, in our show notes. And I'm your host. Jamie Brickhouse, where you can find me every day on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, where I tell a true story in high heels every day. Signing out for the Sober Podcast. Tune in for another show next week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Sober Podcast. We hope that you have found this episode helpful and look forward to you joining us next time. As we continue to grow and implement positive change, we hope that you'll share our podcast with your friends and loved ones. They can find us on all the major podcast directories, 
or at soberpodcast.com. If you have an idea for the show, want to leave positive feedback, ideas, or comments, connect with us at soberpodcast.com. You can also reach out to us on our social media platforms in the Soberverse. We'd love to hear from you. A special thanks to all those who make this show happen. Jamie Brickhouse, our host. Chrissy Senopole, our social media manager. Our sponsor, Dr. J and the Sober Network. And me, I'm your executive producer, Nate Kelly. Join us next Saturday for another story of hope and resilience with a notable sober celebrity. And until then, remember that we here at the Sober Network are driven by our mission to help people get sober and stay sober. Bye for now.